Heavenly Father, we have heard your word. We pray that you bless bless us. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would equip us, and that your name would be great among us. I pray that we would see your glory through your word. pray that you would use my words uh, and that it would be about you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be here, and uh, I didn't expect to be preaching, but it is a delight to uh, be able to bring the word to you. And happily, I've been working on uh, some teaching for the book of Daniel that I'll be doing. And I did uh, speak on this, I think, in 2006. Uh, and I tried to print my old notes, but uh, they were corrupt, so I had to start over. Um, but uh, that was actually for a group of college kids, and uh, um, I suppose there are some college kids here, but uh, this was a little different. Uh, this is a really remarkable passage. Uh, when we come to Daniel, again, last time we saw that Daniel was brought into captivity, that uh, he and many of the kind of the best and brightest of the Jews had uh, been brought uh, into Babylon, that a very select few were brought into Nebuchadnezzar's court, uh, and uh, they were being trained. And uh, Daniel made it through the training, and uh, and here we have some really remarkable things. One is we have this dream business. And in the ancient world, dreams were a big idea, a big deal. And uh, if you've done any reading in history, you might be familiar with uh, uh, Herodotus, who wrote a history of uh, the Greek and Persian wars. This is actually after the book of Daniel. But part of that is an account of King Xerxes receiving these Uh, dreams of a heavenly visitor trying to convince him, go to war, don't go to war, and it's a big deal. And if you haven't read it, um, and you know about the movie The 300, it's based on on Herodotus. All the good stuff comes from there. I'm not saying you should go out and see the movie. Um, There are some inappropriate things, but you might be aware of it. Um, Normally, those dreams would just be that dreams. Uh, I've had dreams. Some of them are weird. Uh, One of my dreams that uh, if I had more time to prepare, I'd probably decide it's a bad idea to share this dream, but I didn't, so I'm going to share it. It was somewhere in my seminary days when I was studying too much and watching movies to unwind, and I had a dream. And I had a dream that I was out in the lineup in San Diego, uh, and while I was waiting for a wave, there were nuclear explosions. And I somehow ended up in this whirlpool and then found safety in a pirate ship. (laughs) Now, I could have gone to any number of places in the San Diego area and paid money, and they would have been happy to tell me what my dream meant. I'm convinced my dream meant I needed to sleep more, study less, and probably not watch Pirates of the Caribbean right before bed. Um, I don't know if that's what I did. But in this case... Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it bugs him, and he can't sleep. Now, that alone is remarkable. Nebuchadnezzar, who is one of the greatest kings to walk the face of the planet, who had, in his day, pretty much limitless power, uh, couldn't sleep. 
and he's bothered. And so we read, he calls together all of the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, etc. Uh, we actually get the word magician from uh, the word um, magis, uh, which comes from Greek through, I think, Aramaic, but it, I might be wrong on that. Uh, again, need more prep time. But uh, back to what I was talking about. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar calls on all these different people from all the places he's conquered, and he says, tell me my dream and tell me what it's about. Now, in verse 4, they come to the king, and they talk to him in Aramaic. And if you were reading this in the original Hebrew, it's kind of neat. Uh, they're, you know, you're reading Hebrew, 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 and they answer in Aramaic, and then it switches to Aramaic, and it actually their quote is in Aramaic, and so is the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. Now, why do I bother telling you that? Um, now, you might think that, oh, that's, that's interesting, and it is to uh, people who like this sort of thing, but it actually is important. It means that the rest of this text and half the book of Daniel is actually readable by the Babylonians. Uh, Aramaic was the lingua franca, the common language of the day, and remained the common language of the day all the way into the Roman era. Um, Certainly Latin is important. Greek is hugely important uh, in the Roman world. But once you get kind of east of Greece, which would include Palestine, uh, and you keep going east, uh, Aramaic was the language. Well, why is that important? It means that these words were not just written for the Jews. could have been written in Hebrew. But Nebuchadnezzar could read this, and so could others. And later on, we have an account from Josephus of uh, Alexander the Great reading the visions of Daniel and looking at the the leopard in one of the visions saying, that's me, and he was right. Um, uh, But of course, that's not the main focus. Um, So you have this remarkable thing that this text and the rest of Daniel up to chapter 7 is written for the Gentile world. But back to our story. We have a dream, and Nebuchadnezzar says, tell me my dream. Now, why does he say, tell me my dream? Uh, When I was taught this in Sunday school and when I was young, um, and certain uh, versions of the Bible kind of lead this way, that the problem was Nebuchadnezzar was bothered by the dream, but he couldn't remember it. But that's not really the case. I'm convinced of it. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the dream. While I was... Uh, getting ready for teaching the class, I looked up my horoscope. I never do this. It's a bunch of rubbish. I'll, I'll put that up forward. But I, I read mine, and I printed it in my notes. And my horoscope for June 8th, uh, I'm an Aquarius, so, so they tell me. After a long period of uncertainty, a few things have started to finalize today. Wait a while before you celebrate, however. Nothing is written in stone yet. But don't let the tentative nature of the situation push you into over push you into overanalyzing. 
You should feel like you're standing on solid ground because you are. Things are definitely coming together and you should sense a building momentum that will take you the rest of the way. Just don't make assumptions. How true that is. Why do I tell you this? You look at something like this and it is so vague that if you were reading this and you kind of believe in it a little bit, you're like, yeah, I am standing on solid ground. I guess I shouldn't make assumptions. How do they know that? Um, But I'm convinced very strongly that it's made up. And Nebuchadnezzar suspected that the wise men were just making things up. That you tell them the dream and you get this answer. And, oh, Mr. Mr. Edmonds, we heard your dream. The pirate ships represent the exam you have on Friday and the nuclear explosions in your dream that has to do with, well, you really haven't been getting enough rest. You're just making things up. Uh, Like I said, I think it didn't have any meaning at all. It was just a weird dream. But Nebuchadnezzar wants to be sure that these guys are actually telling him the true interpretation. And so he gives him this challenge. He says, you tell me my dream and tell me what it means. And these guys who are used to Like, okay, you tell me first, and then we'll tell you, are terrified. Because he says, if you don't tell me, I'm going to kill you all. Uh, And so there's a problem. Uh, And as we continue in our text, the magicians say probably the first thing that they've ever gotten right. And they say, uh, in verse 10, they answer and say, there is not a... A man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. I get a couple things wrong on that last part. There's only one God, and he does reveal his word. But otherwise, they get it right. They can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And so in our text, we learn a little bit about how ruthless Nebuchadnezzar is. He's ready to kill all of his advisors because they can't tell him his dream. He may figure, well, if they can't do that, then what good is any of their advice? Or he may just be so angry that he's flown off the handle and decides that they should just all die because he's, he's angry. But that's not the end of the story, and Daniel hears of this. Daniel understands that it is not he and his ability that can give an answer, but it is God. And so they seek God in prayer, and God answers. Now, I've mentioned last week that one of the dangers of reading the book of Daniel is that we sort of look at the book of Daniel as kind of a moral guide, that we look at Daniel uh, and we interpret the book of Daniel to mean, well, I should be like Daniel. And there are times when that's absolutely right, but it's never really the main point. And so we can look at Daniel and we can say, here is a man of prayer, and we can emulate him. But... If we follow that line of thinking, we can start getting into the trouble of not knowing when to draw the line. When should we be like Daniel? When shouldn't we? 
Daniel prays for the ability to interpret a dream and God gives it. Does that mean that God will do the same for us? No. Um, There's no such promise. But God's word does say that God does answer prayer. And in James 5, we read, if anyone is in trouble, let him pray. If Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer, prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And James continued, he's talking about Elijah praying and it not raining because Elijah prayed. And so we can look at this text and see the importance of prayer. And we should certainly be seeking God earnestly. But again, that's not really the main purpose of the text. After God answers prayer, we see that Daniel gets it. Uh, In verse 18, it says the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Daniel has his own dream. And he knows it's from God. And he praises God. And he understands that, as we see in verse 20, that God is the one to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times as and seasons, sets up kings and tears them down. He reveals the hidden things. He understands that God is in control. Well, Daniel goes before Ariok, the uh, the one who's been, you know, Daniel and his friends were put into Ariok's charge. And he comes to Ariok and he says, don't kill us all. God has told me what, you know, what the dream's about. Uh, and Ariok brings him before Nebuchadnezzar. And here Nebuchadnezzar says, are you able, this is verse 26, are you able to make known to me the, d- the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel knocks it out of the park. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That's one of the, you know, that is one of the chief points of this text. It's God who reveals. But of course, it's the substance of the dream that is the main point of what's going on. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is an amazing man. At this point, his power is unchallenged. Uh, He uh, took over uh, the Babylonian Empire. He defeated, he and his father defeated the Assyrians, and they are unchallenged. And Nebuchadnezzar has absolute authority. And he's under the impression that he is in control of the world. And this dream corrects that notion. What does Nebuchadnezzar see? We read he sees a statue, the head of gold, uh, the arms and torso of silver, the 
kind of abdomen and thighs of bronze, legs of iron with feet of iron and clay. And he sees a rock not cut by human hands. Uh, When the Israelites were making uh, uh, monuments to God, when they were making altars, they were supposed to use uncut stones. Um, He sees this rock come out of this mountain, not cut by human hands. It's God who's doing it. And it knocks the statue over and destroys it and then grows to be a mountain. Well, what does it mean? The thing we want to do here is we want to say, well, what are the kingdoms? And what do they mean? And what about the toes? What are the ten toes? Does that mean anything? And many have gone that direction. Um, But we need to step back before kind of getting into who the kingdoms are and recognize that Daniel only knew who one of these kingdoms was. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. But Nebuchadnezzar, you're not going to last forever. Your kingdom is not going to last forever. None of the kingdoms that come after you will last forever. And Daniel goes on to, to tell him the dream. He did what was humanly impossible through the power of God. And then he gives us the interpretation. There are going to be these kingdoms, but at the end, in the days of this last kingdom, there's going to be one, uh, there's going to be something amazing. And we read this in verse 44 and 45. And in the day, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Psalm 2 puts it another way. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That, by the way, in in answer to the question, why do the nations rage? Again, one of the questions, or two of the questions that would have been with the Israelite people, who is in control? God is. Has God left his people? No. God is very much in control. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was. And for a moment, he understands. And after Daniel tells him, he um, actually bows down to, to Daniel. The text isn't clear if Daniel kind of had a, a moment where he slipped and enjoyed this or he just couldn't refuse because he's the king. Um, I'm, I suspect that Daniel was not at fault here. Um, But for a moment, Nebuchadnezzar understands, though it doesn't last long. If you keep reading, 
If you know what comes next, you know that chapter 3 begins this way. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, 90 feet, and its breadth 6 cubits, 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and then he tells everyone to worship it. So for a moment, Nebuchadnezzar gets it right. God is in control. And then, apparently, he kind of sits back and says, I'm the head of gold. That's pretty cool. I think I'll build a statue and make everyone worship me. Uh, And then we're going to have the fiery furnace. And then, since that wasn't enough, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to eat grass like a cow for seven years. And at the end, boy, does he get it. God is in control. So we want to be careful again. When Daniel is giving the interpretation, he doesn't have all of history spelled out in a way that he understands. Later on, when he receives the visions, they terrify him. He gets these wild visions of how things will end. His visions uh, play into the imagery of of the book of Revelation. Uh, And if you know that, you know, Either one, it's weird stuff. Uh, And Daniel didn't understand it. But there is something that comes through very clearly. God is in control, and God is going to establish his kingdom. But of course, we have a perspective on this that Daniel didn't. We can read history books and and see. And there's still a lot of questions. Most conservative scholars, that is, those who believe that the Bible is the word of God, that there is a God and he reveals things to his people, believe that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the silver, Persia, the bronze, Alexander the Great in his Greek Macedonian kingdom, which then ends up split. Um, And then the Roman era. And in each, you have descending glory. Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute king. He said something, he could change his mind. I'm going to kill you all. No, I'm not. No big deal to change his mind. He's the king. We move ahead to King Darius of Persia. Persia. And uh, I'm convinced that it's a throne name of Cyrus. Um, Anyone who doesn't worship me for 30 days is going to be thrown into the lions. Oh, wait, my friend Daniel didn't worship me. Can he change his mind? No. It's a law of the Medes and Persians. I can't change it. And then, kind of as you go down, the Romans. You don't have the same single ruler, first in the Republic, then in um, even into the emperors, they still had to deal with the Senate and all sorts of things. And there was never the same kind of unity um, that Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed. So descending glory, but ascending strength. And just as gold is soft 
softer than silver. Silver, silver is softer than bronze, bronze than iron. Uh, once you get to Rome, the, the might of Rome was amazing, but also flawed. And it's in the day of the Romans that Jesus is born. And it's in the day of the Romans that Jesus is crucified and rose from the dead to pay for our sins. And Daniel, uh, that is Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream of that event. And in the Old Testament, uh, the day of the Lord is treated as kind of one event. And so uh, once you get to the New Testament, we see that this is strung out. The building of the mountain from the rock is still happening. It's not finished. Jesus came and he accomplished salvation on the cross, but he's going to return one day. And it's then that the mountain will stand. It's then that it will be encompassing the whole earth, the whole universe. Jesus himself quotes Daniel in Matthew 21 when he's arguing with uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, uh, and they've been challenging him, and he goes on the offensive and says this, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to, the piece, broken to pieces. Anyone who falls on it will be crushed. Here we have an allusion to this vision, this crushing of the kingdoms of humanity and the building up of the kingdom of God. Well, what do we do with all of this? Oh, and I want to back up. Um, and say one more thing. Other than the main uh, main schema of the four kingdoms, there's still a lot of questions about uh, how do you interpret it? And I think there's a lot that's been read into this vision that isn't necessarily there. We need to be careful, especially when we're dealing with things like the end times. Jesus himself said, only the Father knows. While Jesus was on earth, he didn't. Uh, it's a dangerous thing to read things into the text to try to figure it out. And so when you, if you were to do an internet search, what are the four kingdoms? You get some really interesting things. Most of them get the first three, you know, first four right. And then what about the ten toes? What about the feet? They're partly iron, they're partly clay. Is this the modern world? I think that's possible. It's possible that sort of the Roman era bleeds into the modern era, and that's possible. Some have, su have suggested it's the United States. How wonderful is that? Uh, United States are, you know, we've got 50 states. There are 10 toes, each toe see the problem or here's another good one the European Union that scary organization that yields such power um, uh, 
others have suggested it's the a renewed Islamic caliphate that, that has to do with Islam. And if, with all of those, well, maybe, but what is the text about? What is the message? The message is that the kingdom, the kingdoms of humanity will not endure, but the kingdom of God will. And the response of Nebuchadnezzar is for a moment to worship God, for the most powerful man on the planet of that day to understand that, wow, as he says to Daniel in verse 47, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealers of mysteries. Well, what do we do with this text? We should do the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did in that moment. We should look at this and we should be thrown back and amazed. And we should understand that God is building a kingdom and that he is in control. And if you're a Christian, that should give you great hope and great motivation and great encouragement. Jesus has won. And he's coming back. And all the difficulties that we see are momentary. And the work that we do in Jesus' name will last forever. Not because of who we are, but because of the Holy Spirit and because of of the work God is doing. Well, if you're not a Christian, what does this mean for you? It means that God is in control. Jesus himself said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And if you're someone who is looking at Christianity from the outside, we can get into this kingdom freely. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and and profess that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And the way to be saved is just to pray. God, I'm a sinner. I believe in you. Forgive me and receive me into your kingdom. And then you can know that you're a part of the kingdom and God will give you his spirit. As we finish, I want to say again one more time to reflect this week on the fact that God is in control, that his kingdom is being built up and that nothing will ever tear it down. May we be people who glorify God and who live in joy at his coming kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that you are God. You are King of kings and Lord of lords in the ultimate sense, in a way far beyond who Nebuchadnezzar was. And we know that your kingdom will last forever. Give us faith in that. And as we struggle, as we limp along, I pray that we would turn our eyes to you and that we would be encouraged and that we would see that that this life does have meaning because we are participating in what you're doing. And our suffering will be turned for your glory and our good. Thank you that you have conquered Work in us, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, because uh, 
Buster isn't here today, uh, we won't be having communion. Uh, So we're going to go to our last couple songs. So let's stand and sing in response and uh, worship our God. We're just going to do My Redeemer's Love, which is the song of blessing, since we're not doing communion. of 